Welcome to Fast Frontiers. I am your host, Tim Shigel, Managing Partner of Refinery Ventures. In this episode, we're bringing you my conversation with Scott Dorsey, co-founder and managing partner of High Alpha Venture Studio and Early Stage Venture Capital Fund in Indianapolis, Indiana. Scott was previously the CEO and co-founder of Exact Target, which was acquired by Salesforce in 2013 for over $2.5 billion. In this episode, we're going to talk to Scott about his early days founding Exact Target, particularly the early learnings, building sales teams, and raising their first venture capital funding to scale from $1 million to $9 million in revenue. And then we'll move to High Alpha, one part venture capital firm, one part venture studio. And we'll look at the impact of both of these on the state of Indiana and the Midwest ecosystem. Please enjoy my conversation with Scott Dorsey. Scott Dorsey is an American entrepreneur, investor, and startup advisor. He's a co-founder and managing partner at High Alpha, a venture studio that conceives, launches, and scales enterprise technology companies. In late 2000, Scott, along with Chris Baggett and Peter McCormick, co-founded Exact Target, a provider of digital marketing automation and analytics software and services. Exact Target raised over $160 million in an initial public offering on the New York Stock Exchange in 2012 and was acquired by Salesforce.com for over $2.5 billion in 2013. During his career at Exact Target, Scott held the positions of chairman and CEO. Scott stepped down as CEO of Salesforce Exact Target Marketing Cloud in May 2014. Scott was born in Northeast Ohio and grew up in Naperville, Illinois. He attended Indiana University Bloomington and received a bachelor's in marketing from the Kelly School of Business. He later went on to receive his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern in 1999. Scott also co-founded the venture studio High Alpha alongside Christian Anderson and former Exact Target executive Mike Fitzgerald and Eric Tobias. High Alpha has raised two funds and continues to launch new startups in the Indiana area. One of the things that I love about Scott is that he's an entrepreneur who's now helping to teach and inspire other entrepreneurs, which I think is so important, especially in this part of the country. So Scott, welcome. Thanks, Tim. What a wonderful introduction. Great to, uh, great to be on the program. Easy to do. You gave me plenty of material. There's, I didn't have to go into all of the uh, awards that you've had and your uh, involvement in the sports community, too, that maybe we can touch on later. No, uh, thank you. Thank you. Listening to the intro, it reinforces that I'm such a Midwesterner. Good heavens. Born in Ohio, grew up in Chicago, and you know now in Indy. But, uh, but I, I love the Midwest and love Midwest tech. Yeah, there's so much potential here. And for somebody, I mean, you encapsulate so many of the you know attributes that we need, right? When you think of the employees and their families and the influence you had, not just in Indianapolis, but the whole state, as well as people in, I mean, around the globe, you know, and when you look at your thousands and thousands of customers, I bet when you were starting it, you weren't thinking of, that degree of influence that you would have globally, were you? We definitely weren't, Tim. We definitely weren't. I mean, it was really fun. The, the vision and the potential impact became apparent over time, but you're so right. You know, in the early days, and in our case, we started Exact Target at a pretty challenging time, late 2000, early 2001, you know, really after the internet bubble had, uh, had blown into millions of pieces. 
And we were, you know, we were a classic, you know, against all odds story. Three first-time software entrepreneurs starting a software company in Indy. None of us had a technical background. And we were, we were just hoping to take it one step at a time, you know, build a, build a simple product, see if we could find the market, generate some revenue, hopefully get some funding, and, you know, hopefully, you know, build a viable business that, uh, that thankfully we were able to do. And I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with the story in the headlines. I mean, you sell a company for a couple billion dollars or you go public, people find out, they, they know the headline. But one of the areas that, you know, we're both focused on, I think, is the companies that are obviously much earlier and particularly this after seed round, but going from like a million to 10, that that next period of growth where many companies fail, right? They, they top out, you know, below 5 million probably. I'd love to just get into the early days of Exact Target in terms of what what you went through and and what that looked like. Who was advising you? How did that how did that all come about? Yeah, I'd be happy to. I think there's some real parallels to starting a business today, you know, Tim, and that it was such a challenging time that we had to be remarkably resourceful and creative. And boy, we were. So we built, you know, a simple product for small businesses to utilize permission-based email marketing to connect with their customers. And we really had almost no funding. You know, we had a little bit of friends and family funding and we were not really attractive to the venture community yet. So we had to be really, really resourceful. So we, we sold aggressively. We found actually many of our friends who were kind of out of work, you know, they had been laid off from their dot-com jobs. And we signed them up as kind of independent contractors selling for us with the promise that, hey, if we turned into a real business, we'll convert you to employees. So they basically worked for equity and commission. So when we converted them to employees, we had a very strange employee count. We were, you know, we were, we were, we were maybe, you know, 50 employees and half were in sales, you know, so we were, we were heavily tilted to go to market. And, but it but it really helped. We didn't need we didn't really need outside funding events because we kind of sold our way to viability, and we created a you know really strong sales motion in the early days. We also spun up a channel. We found that advertising agencies already had their relationships with clients and marketers. They were writing copy and doing campaigns, but they they lacked a underlying technology platform to help them move to the internet and leverage digital. So we spun up an agency channel, and that helped us land really big brands like Home Depot and General Mills, you know, well before we were really ready or we would have ever had a hope or prayer of landing them directly. So, so it was creativity. It was being resourceful. And I find, you know, those characteristics are really important in entrepreneurs today as you're get started, getting started trying to find the market. You have to be resourceful and creative, in particular, if you're not able to raise large amounts of capital from the beginning. That's a really interesting angle when people, when you talk about starting a company in a, in a recession or depressed times, which I, I believe as you do, that that's some of the best times to start a company because it creates more focus and discipline. Absolutely. But also those salespeople may not have been willing to take that bet if the market was roaring, right? They, they could get paid anywhere. So it helped you bring good people on that were willing to take that bet at that time. It, it totally did. It totally did. And I think it's, I think a parallel here that's interesting is when you're starting a, a software tech company in a market like Cincinnati or Columbus or Indy, you have to really think about your unique advantages. You know, what about the region or what about the time? What about the moment in our, in our, 
our history and our society and our economy, how do you leverage that to your advantage? How do you be opportunistic? And we certainly did that. We did that through a time when we had to bootstrap the business, and then we found many creative ways to leverage Indianapolis as a competitive advantage. So how long did it take to get to your first million dollars in revenue? We were remarkably fast, Tim. We kind of shot out of the gates very, very quickly. So 2001, we started building the product and we had a product that barely, like barely worked in May before I really knew the definition of MVP. It was, <laughs> it was a barely viable product. And, and that first year, we sold about 300000 in bookings, many $1,000, $2,000, subscriptions at a time. And then the second year we did 3 million and the third year we did 9 million. So we came out of the gates really, really fast on a very small amount of capital, but it was really this customer first, you know, go to market heavy uh, kind of orientation that we had. And, and part of it was we were kind of, we were fighting for survival. You know, we, we didn't have a lot of funding cushions. So we, we really found that, you know, we, we, we had to cater to the customer. We had, we had to sell. We had to drive revenue to make sure that we could be a sustainable business. By the time you got to that $9 million level, how much capital had gone into the company at that point? Only $2 million. Yes, that's wow. something we raised. We raised 200000 from friends and family, parents, you know, in-laws, neighbors, siblings. And then we raised one point five in angel capital. So we had one point seven. And that was really enough to give us that really big boost and, and very fast start. Wow, that's, yeah, that's terrific. We talk about, I think Bessemer may have coined it, you know, the, the baseball analogy here of, you know, have two triples and three doubles in terms of year over year revenue growth. And it starts at a million, not at zero, but right. If, if you can get that first million, which is all your test customers, and you can triple, triple again, three to nine, and then double each year after that, you could go public. Right, which seems like a great benchmark and target for entrepreneurs out there, especially with SaaS companies, but also to do it in a capital efficient way. So who were, in some of those early days, uh, you know, most entrepreneurs have a mentor or an advisor or somebody helps them navigate this. Was there somebody in your life that helped you through this? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Our, our lead investor during that angel round, so a guy named Bob Compton, and we were, so, we were so lucky, Tim, to find Bob. I had been knocking on many doors for funding and uh, was accumulating a lot of no's, you know, both from angel investors and VCs. And we found a way to, to reach Bob. And Bob had been a very success, successful tech executive himself and investor. He had invested through CID Equity in a, in a company called Software Artistry. That was the first tech IPO we had in the state of Indiana, and he was chairman. And then he also ran a company called Sophomore Danic that sold to Medtronic. So we really, he was kind of the double threat of understanding the world of venture, but really understanding leadership and how to grow, how to grow and scale tech companies. So it was amazing. Tim, Bob agreed to be our first angel investor. And then his stamp of approval, his stamp of credibility made raising the rest of the round easy. You know, we had a lot of, hey, if Bob thinks it's a good idea, you know, sign me up. Sure. And then Bob agreed to be our chairman and, 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 and held that position for seven years and was an incredible uh, mentor and, and coach and guide for me. And as we were growing exact target, he would always ask if, if we, if we hit it big with exact target, you know, if we have any measure of success, what would you want to do next? And I would, 
I would always answer that I'd, I'd want to be you. <laughs> I'd want to be you, Bob. I'd, I'd want to mentor and coach entrepreneurs. I'd want to, I'd want to invest in entrepreneurs and help others. And, uh, you know, I'm really, I feel really fortunate to be doing that today. Yeah. Following his footsteps. That's, that's so true. And for entrepreneurs, I think, um, they really need to hear that. You know, some of my best relationships of wealth come from, you could cold call. I mean, if I were to cold call you and people have done to me, and Hey, I'm a young entrepreneur. And, and if I took the time and had the, had the courage to call and say, Hey, Scott, I, I need some help. Can you, can you help me out? Can you coach me? Most entrepreneurs are going to say yes. Right. Cause it's, cause they've had people that did that to them and help pull them up. hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, you, uh, you only have a measure of success if you surround yourself with a lot of great people and you've had a lot of help along the way yourself. And, and boy, it's a, it's a privilege, you know, to be able to help others. You know, Techstars has a great kind of mantra, give first. And, and give first is help others with really no expectation of return. I try to live that, you know, to, to the best of my ability. And in those earliest days, you know, most entrepreneurs hear that, oh, if you're going to raise money, if you're going to raise a Series A or a Seed Plus, you need to be at that million, you know, ARR level. And my observation has been that first million or so is really, what I call test revenue and the later it becomes scale revenue, right? And just like in sports, in any sport, you first got to get the form right, right? So you go slow and you work on form before you go fast. And I wonder if you've seen the same thing where in the early days, you're not necessarily optimizing for scale yet. You're optimizing for feedback and learning to understand does my product work? Does it deliver an ROI? How big is the ROI? Who are the right customers? Would you, is that, how does that compare to your observations? Spot on. I, I love the way you phrase that, Tim. I think test revenue and scale revenue, if you don't mind, I might, I might borrow that and start, start using it. You're, you're so right. The, the first million, it's okay for it to be messy and sloppy and a little inconsistent and you have to be creative, how to generate revenue, how to get customers to say yes. And you're so right. It's all about the feedback loop between you and those early customers. What do they need? What's working? What could be better? How, how else can we serve you? And then, and then once you've really started to lock in on that and you sense repeatability, that's really, really important. We know our businesses are working when buyers are buying for approximately the same reason. Like there's, there's a pattern, right? You're looking for that repeatability. Right. Where we find some early companies get in trouble is maybe they have 10 or 15 customers, but they all have really different expectations of what they want and need. And they're kind of buying for different reasons or different use cases. You really need that tight focus early on. And then you're so right. Once you've hit, once you've hit a million in ARR and you have a pretty good sense for the market and product market fit, then you've got to shift into kind of more operational mode and scale mode and make sure you've got you know, resource allocation and, and your go-to-market, you know, kind of properly locked in. And there could be danger of hiring too many salespeople too early, right? Because they don't have a standard thing they're selling and you need that feedback. So like when were, at what point uh, at ET were you uh, able to say, okay, now we can really start hiring salespeople. And, and how did you go about that? Because that's another experiment as well, right? So now you know what products, you know what the customer, you know, you know the value prop, but do you know what a right what a salesperson profile is and how do you build that capability? You don't yeah. have a sales training program yet, right? No, you're so right. And we we see this at High Alpha also that 
you know, kind of chapter one, I would say is founder selling, you know, the founder has to be able to convey the vision and the, and the, and the value to the market and, and get a couple wins kind of under their belt. There's no chance an AE that you hire from the outside is going to have success if that founder can't create some energy, some repetition, some early customers on board. So we kind of find, you know, founder selling is, is kind of the first chapter. The second chapter is a tough transition, though. It's when the founder needs to start pulling themselves out of sales. Maybe they're, they're guiding, they're coaching, they're getting involved in the bigger opportunities. But you need to be able to prove you can hire, onboard, train, enable, you know, reps to be successful on their own. In our case at ET, and it was a key element of advice from Bob, from Bob Compton, was he insisted that we hired three reps at a time, that just dabbling uh, with sales and hiring one rep could give you a false positive or a false negative. So he was insistent upon higher uh, classes, higher three at a time, and, we'd, we, and we, we did it to a T. We'd have them start the same day, train them, onboard them. Uh, measure them. They could learn from one another, lean on each other, create a little friendly competition. And then we could really get a sense for whether the model was working. And we experimented with inside sales, field sales, and then channel sales to see which one worked. And, and thankfully, kind of all three worked. So those became our three legs of the, of the go-to-market stool for us at, at Exact Target. At High Alpha, we tried to do the same. But, but it, you know, it's challenging if you're kind of thinly capitalized the temptation is maybe not to hire reps, maybe go a little too long with founder selling, or maybe hire one rep at a time. And I see kind of many early stage companies making that mistake. So you have to be comfortable that every sales hire you make is not going to be successful, but you're going you're gonna to learn and they're going to put positive pressure on the organization. Who was your first institutional venture investor? So yeah, first investor was Insight Venture Partners out of New York. They came on board summer of 2004, and they were amazing. They were amazing, Tim. They really helped us grow, uh, both in their own kind of knowledge, programming, expertise, but then we also got introduced to 30 or 40 other portfolio companies who were going on the same learning journey. And I, I tried to be a sponge. I tried to learn as much as I could from the, you know, the inside investors, all the other CEOs, and then I signed up for all the quarterly programming one, one very nice compliment they gave me along the way is that they shared that I attended more insight learning programs than any other CEO <laughs> they had in the portfolio. And part of it was I just, I didn't know anything, but I was such a beginner, you know, as I, I didn't know what I didn't know that I, I not only went to the CEO programs, I went to the Devon engineering programs. I went to go to market. I went to customer success. I just, I wanted to absorb and learn as much as, as much as I could. And I, I give that advice to entrepreneurs today that, you know, take advantage of the resources that are available and, and hopefully align yourself with excellent investors who have a lot of experience where you can really learn from them and their programming motion. And when you did that, the, the, uh, you were already at the 9 million ARR? Yeah, correct. That was about the time they came in. And, and what size round? Boy, did they help us. We raised uh, 10 and a half million. Mm -hmm. And this was interesting, Tim. It was part primary, part secondary. And the secondary component was an opportunity for the three of us that founded the company and really hadn't paid ourselves anything really for the first year and not much beyond that to take a few chips off the table and, and lock in some, some security for our family. And then we also offered to all investors if they wanted to sell a few shares along the way, they'd have that opportunity. And that was really brilliant for us because it 
it gave us enough comfort and security that we could really go big. Like we could really aim for the stars. Because I, I, often I find entrepreneurs, when you start to have some breakout success, all your net worth is tied up in the company, you really start playing defense. Like you're like, oh my gosh, I just need to not mess this up. I need to preserve what, what I built. And, and often, in particular, I think in markets in the Midwest, they end up selling the business you know, prematurely. They end up selling the business way earlier than they probably should for community impact, for job growth, and for, for their own wealth creation of, of, for, for them and their employees. So if, if you can find investors that are comfortable with secondary, it can be a really nice way to lock in some security and then, uh, and then keep dreaming big and make sure you go back on offense to really build a scalable business. So glad you brought that up. Actually, I literally the phone call before this was on the phone with a founder talking about that. Exactly. Oh, subject. really? Really? Yes. And, and what's the right balance? Because this person heard from another who apparently was a little too aggressive in their ask, you know, in terms of how much they wanted to sell or, you know, cash out that it turned off the investor. Now, obviously there's a balance, right? You're, you're not going to plan to retire necessarily, but you're going to know that, Hey, college is paid for, or, you know, whatever. I don't have to worry about, you know, paying my mortgage and that sort of thing. hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, we, we all had very young families, you know, we had, we had mortgages. We were just worried, you know, about our financial future and to take, take enough off the table that you can feel pretty good about, you know, your, your mortgage and you can send your kids to college and all that good stuff. And, but, but not so much that you, you don't, you're not hungry, you know, you don't want right. to, you're, you're not, you're not driven to, to work hard and take the business as far as you can. You've got to find that balance, but you've also got to, you know, find entrepreneurs that have a strong value set and they want to provide an amazing return to their investors and work hard and take the business as far as they can. Sure. So you attracted insight. And I think that sort of underscores a, a point that, that I've noticed and, and I talked to a lot of Midwest entrepreneurs about when they, when they, when they face the challenge of raising capital, which is uh, to understand that capital follows growth. You were able to raise that money because you already showed the metrics and the growth, right? They likely would not have gotten on a plane if you wowed them with your vision for exact target, but didn't have the growth to back it up. 100%. We're in a market... And, and software as a service in particular, where it's all growth. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're putting big growth numbers on the board, amazing investors will find you. I mean, they really will. They will. And they'll, they'll, they'll hop on a plane when we get back to, to a day where that happens, or they'll certainly hop on Zooms today. It's, it's actually, and you know, as, as terrible as COVID's been, it has leveled the playing field for young companies raising capital from investors in different geographies, you know, so that, that's really, really wonderful. And I, I'm a huge advocate for the benefit, the benefits of us having more capital in cities like Indianapolis and Cincy, more capital in the Midwest, only good, only good can come from that. But the largest pockets of capital are on the coast. And, and you're so right, Tim, if you build an amazing company, they they'll find you and they'll and they'll be excited to invest and, and help and pour capital into your company. And it was funny with Insight, you know, being New York based, I had a lot of mixed feelings early on that, you know, kind of what a shame we weren't able to raise more capital from the local market, you know, that we had to go to New York. And then later we raised from Bay Area investors. But it actually turned out to be amazing because as an entrepreneur, it gave it gave me a bigger worldview. 
It tapped me into networks I didn't have, uh, geographies uh, that I, I wasn't close to. And then for the investors, they fell in love with Indianapolis. You know, they, they loved coming to Indy. They loved our people and our Midwest values and our work, work ethic and uh, understood the amazing universities and talent advantage and kind of the low cost of business and, and government and business working well together. All those kind of unique advantages to a market like Indy they fell in love with Indianapolis. And in virtually every one of these coastal investors, they've made additional investments in Indianapolis because they, they got acquainted with us through exact targets. So it turned out to be a benefit that I, I wouldn't have been able to predict in advance. So once you had these coastal investors, did anybody ask the question, so Scott, how are you, is the talent there in Indiana, Indiana? Can you hire the people we need to hire? Can you hire the developers? All the time, all the time. I was even I was even scared, Tim. Could I could I meet their expectations? You know, it was was I a strong enough leader? Was I learning fast enough? That could I could I keep scaling? You know, to meet their expectations, and uh, and the talent question came up over and over again for sure. And we we had to kind of build our own. You know, we ended up building a really robust college internship program and and new grad rotational program. So we. Part of our talent strategy was really dominating on the college campuses, uh, IU, Purdue, Notre Dame, Butler, uh, Ball State, Rose Hallman. And then beyond that, have really strong leadership development within our company so that we could really uh, you know, grow our talent. And then we would have to recruit from other, other markets and other geographies to try to build a leadership team that had, had more experience, had done it before, had, had scaled businesses from 10 to 100 or you know, 100 to 500. And, um, and that we selectively added executives, largely in Midwest markets that could, uh, could help us. And, and, you know, that the number one key for, for scaling yourself as a leader is surrounding yourself with amazing people that have just tremendous experience. I, I found, you know, how, how was I so fortunate to go from scrappy startup CEO to running a public company? It was mentors, advisors, investors, but it was, it was also, building an incredible leadership team that just made me better. And did you see that that was an advantage after you joined forces with Salesforce, having, having a foothold in Indiana? You know, it definitely helped, you know, definitely helped. So we, you know, at the time we were acquired, we had 2000 employees. We were a publicly traded company and we, we had really reached some significant scale and, you know, Tim, and really proud of what we accomplished, thought we knew what excellent looked like, thought we knew what fast really meant, you know, and then uh, poof, you know, we get inside of Salesforce and it's, it's a whole different gear. You know, I, I sometimes will liken it to we were, we were playing college football and then we stepped into the NFL and everything was just moving faster. So that was a great learning experience. You know, that was, that was an amazing learning experience. I stayed for a year worked directly for Benioff, which was really cool. I learned so much from Mark. And, um, and it was important to me to stay at least long enough to make sure the, the integration and the transition went remarkably well, you know, for our, our team and our customers in the city. And then even today, you know, many of our leaders at Exact Target have now emerged into really significant leadership roles at Salesforce. And that, that's super rewarding to see. That's great. Oftentimes people, at, when I hear that question, you know, can you hire people in Cincinnati, in Ohio, in Indiana? My follow-up is, can you hire people in Silicon Valley? Have you tried that? <laughs> exactly. You're competing with Salesforce and Google and Facebook and everybody else. And it's, 
it's uh, entrepreneurs, I think, uh, should see hiring in a region outside of Silicon Valley as actually an advantage. There, there's, there's something to be said for kind of being a bigger, bigger fish in a smaller pond. And, um, and that's, that's an opportunity we have in a lot of our Midwestern cities. And you're so right. You made the point earlier around kind of the multiplier effect. And I think we should acknowledge there was a great IPO yesterday, Root Insurance in Columbus, transformative, you know, yep. for that city. And, and it's building on the success of others who came before them. And um, it's just fun to see some of these uh, breakout companies being built in Midwestern cities. And there's no question it'll lead to more. Absolutely. Yeah. Success begets success, right? Uh, whether it's the employees that work there and, and take that experience elsewhere or people who see that it can happen and say, oh, I can do it here. That's right. right. That's, That's right. Great. So let's turn to high alpha. What, how did the high alpha concept come together and just share with our you know, listeners what it is? Sure. So high alpha is a venture studio. And the, I think the best way to think about high alpha, we're one part startup studio one part venture capital firm. We started five and a half years ago, Tim. It's unbelievable how fast it's gone. But as we were kind of spinning out of Salesforce, me, Mike, Christian, and Eric, we had all been friends and worked together in one form or another. And we, we were starting SaaS companies with co-founders kind of as a hobby, you know, almost like nights and weekends and really enjoyed, you know, mentorship and coaching. And we got together and just started dreaming about what if we started a company that started companies, you know, kind of a, a, a meta play. And, and how could we leverage all this B2B SaaS experience and this national and global network of, of talent, you know, that, that we had, uh, and, and friends, you know, and relationships we had built over time. Could we build something special? And if we did it right, could we build something really special for Indy in the Midwest? So we kind of started down this path and we were, if not the first venture studio, certainly among the first to conceive of this notion of a startup studio paired with a venture fund. And it really makes a lot of sense. So the startup studio is focused on starting new SaaS and cloud companies. The venture fund can invest in those studio companies, but also can invest in other high growth B2B SaaS companies, you know, everywhere around the world. But in many ways, the fund is almost pre-raising capital on behalf of our future studio CEOs, kind of getting back to that notion of it's really hard and time consuming to raise capital for an early stage company, particularly in a market like Indy. So pairing the two together has made a ton of sense. And boy, we've had a blast. We've started 25 new companies. We've invested in, I believe, 35 plus outside of our studio. So we built a very robust portfolio of talented founders and entrepreneurs and early stage B2B SaaS companies, all kind of learning from one another and going on this journey together and hopefully building some breakout success. Yeah, you've had a lot of great ideas and great entrepreneurs that I've had the opportunity to meet over the last few years. I'm curious, what are some of the things you've learned personally after you know the success of Exact Target, you know, running and scaling an operating company to an investment fund in the studio, what, what were some of the maybe surprise learnings that you've had? So much to learn. You know, Tim, that's what energizes me is, is hopefully making a difference in helping others, but also learning myself, you know, and I, I still have mentors, you know, and I, I still have a lot to learn. So, so learning venture has been, has been a, a, a steep learning curve. You know, all of us have an operating background. We had done angel investing all new territory. And we've been really, really helpful. Our 
kind of mentor in that regard has been Greenspring, an amazing fund-to-fund investor out of Baltimore, and then a foundry out of Boulder. And they've, they've really helped us. So we've learned a lot around portfolio construction and, you know, how to think about building a, a winning venture portfolio, how to raise money from institutional LPs. And um, so that, that's one part learning. Second part learning is just how to build a startup studio, you know, that only, only a few have ever, I think, worked, you know, and really scaled. So it's a lot of creativity, you know, and also a lot of experiments around our team. As one example, we have 40 team members who are SaaS experts, and our centers of excellence are finance, HR and talent, design, and go-to-market. So just building out those functions to help entrepreneurs go faster, that's been a learning evolution that's been a blast. And then maybe lastly of just how to source new ideas. And the ideas come from all directions. You know, we have our own ideas, entrepreneurs approach us, we do a lot of partnering with big co's who themselves are going through some digital transformation. So we've done a lot of pioneering around how to source ideas and then ultimately how to build a methodology that surfaces the best ideas we want to green light and get started with. What signs or evidence do you have to date that this model can scale? Yeah, it's a great question. I think our companies are getting funded. That's always a good validation point that, you know, it's one thing that we think it's a good idea and we're kind of hand selecting and matchmaking the ideas with the co-founders, but the validation comes from the market, the customer market first, and then, and then secondly, the venture market. So companies that are, are, are raising series A and series B from, you know, from world-class investors, that's really, really great validation. I'd say the other element is, are we, finding high quality co-founders that want to start companies with us. And, and the answer is a huge yes. You know, we, we are so blessed to be working with an incredible crew of, of CEOs and co-founders who are very accomplished. Uh, many are first-time CEOs, but also many are second and third-time CEOs, and they understand and value the studio model. So that's been, that's been rewarding. And, um, and in many ways, we just feel like we're getting started. You know, it takes a long time to build a B2B SaaS company. So we're, we're five years in and we have a lot of, you know, very young sub 10 million in ARR companies. <laughs> and, right. uh, and I think we'll, you know, our mark of success is going to be five, 10, 15 years from now. Did we create some big breakout successes? Hopefully that created a lot of jobs, you know, and really made the world a better place. Yeah, hopefully you'll have the high alpha unicorn club. Yeah. So what, can you talk about a few, I know, you know, it's always hard when you have so many companies to pick your favorite, your favorite child, if you will, but, but maybe you could share a couple of the companies that, that you're particularly excited about or, or that the listeners could learn from. Be happy to, I know it's so hard to, it's so hard to pick a couple, but, uh, but I'll see if I can pick a couple examples that are illustrative. One of them is called Mandolin. And I may have mentioned this to you earlier, Tim, but this was a post COVID startup. We started more companies, by the way, in 2020 than any prior year, kind of by an order of magnitude. They're just, they're just so many new problems to solve, so many new opportunities. So with Mandolin, we identified that live music had stopped and venues and artists were, were really struggling. They had no meaningful way to connect with their fans and, and generate revenue, and in some cases, stay in business. We quickly started Mandolin, which is a live music streaming platform for artists and venues to connect with fans. We recruited this extraordinary leader, Mary Kay Hughes, who we had worked with for years at ET and Salesforce. 
and, and we got started and we got started in a big, big way. The company started in June and last week, Tim, Mary Kay was on CNBC. Hmm. <laughs> how's, how's that for exciting? She's very quickly scaled the business to about 50 team members. Just to give an example of the scale and velocity and tapping into such a need we have 250 concerts scheduled between now and the end of the year on the oh. platform. So it's an example of having a big tailwind, seeing a really pressing need in the market, and then going remarkably fast to build a solution that the industry needs. So that's, that's really, really exciting. So I know you've been very active in the state, and, and I think Indiana's doing some really interesting things. Can you talk about the impact that the state has been having an entrepreneurship and specifically the next level fund. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, you know, I, I like to hold up Indian as, as an example of business and government working really well together. We're fortunate that our state capital is here in Indianapolis and every mayor and every governor, regardless of party, Democrat and Republican have been so supportive of business and of tech and there's a nice spirit of collaboration here and a nice spirit of let's just get things done and kind of knock down barriers. And I'll do, just give you a couple examples I'm really proud of. The Next Level Fund you referenced was created approximately three years ago. And it was a, a vision from kind of Governor Holcomb and the, the state legislature to help uh, inject more capital into, into the VC community. We only have a couple of venture firms in Indy and they're, we're generally kind of all on the small side. So next level is a $250 million fund of funds that enables, uh, and it's administered by an amazing group, 50 Southwest Al out of Chicago, but they're able to invest in existing venture firms to help us be bigger and deploy more capital. And then also attract firms outside of Indiana to have an eye on all the great things that are happening within our tech ecosystem. So it, it's, uh, it's boosted our relevance and it's brought more venture capital to the state. That's been really positive. A second one is we started the Exact Target Foundation and then later spun it out under the brand Next Tech to focus on computer science education. And Tim, goodness, only I'd say four or five years ago, 10, 15% of high schools in the state of Indiana were teaching computer science. I mean, just abysmal. And today, Next Tech, and then with the support of the state, we'll reach 100% of K-12 through schools in the state of Indiana will be teaching computer science by the end of the 21 school year. That, that only happens with that kind of private-public partnership. So, uh, that's, so that's a great another, example. Wow. another just amazing accomplishment. And uh, there's actually an article last week in the uh, Milwaukee Business Journal highlighting how Indiana has skipped ahead of all other Midwestern states in their embracing of computer science education and enabling schools. So that's kind of neat when you're getting that kind of, you know, that kind of, you know, credibility or highlight from markets outside the state. So those would those be a couple examples, but it's for, you know, for entrepreneurs that are building companies, I always encourage them to think about community impact and think about building those partnerships with uh, civic leaders because they, they really want you to be successful, you know, and they, they want you to create new jobs and, and bring more kind of high-tech, high-paying jobs, you know, to your community. And, and through, um, through open partnership and collaboration, often you can find ways to get an extra boost or get some support from government leaders, maybe in a way you didn't anticipate. And along those lines, I think hopefully we have some investors listening, but investors in our region, you know, in the Midwest, 
that have the opportunity to invest in high alpha, you know, or other local regional funds to be part of this success and the growth. And the stories you just told, I think are great examples of you can, you know, do good by doing well, right? Your success has allowed you to have this kind of influence across the state that, you know, otherwise wouldn't be possible, right? So great opportunity for investors to have an impact and partner with entrepreneurs as well. Yeah, no question. No question. You can not only build great companies and produce a great financial return, but you can also have a transformative impact, you know, on the community in which you live. And that's, that's, that's probably the most rewarding aspect, you know, to, to be such a contributor to your local economy and your local community that you can, you can move it forward. That's, uh, you know, that, that'll have long lasting impact. Well, I think that is a great place to end. Scott, thank you very much for coming and spending the time. Tim, thank you for everything you're doing and uh, supporting uh, tech ecosystems like Indianapolis and the greater Midwest. I'm grateful to be a part of the program. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Fast Frontiers. If you like the show and want to know more, check out our website, fastfrontiers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others and give us a rating and review on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to our first season of Fast Frontiers. 2020 has been quite a year to say the least. We'll remember it as a time when we faced new challenges and we took a chance on creating this podcast. We had an amazing time connecting with new and old friends to bring you great conversations about accelerating innovation in unexpected places. Because of your interest, we are excited to bring you season two in early 2021. Thank you again. We'll see you back here soon.